I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Suzanne Jones, author and trauma recovery expert. Her new book is There Is Nothing to Fix, Becoming Whole Through Radical Self-Acceptance. Do you constantly wonder what you're saying, doing, or thinking that's causing you to feel less than? Are you always looking for ways to fix something about yourself? Well, you're not alone. Far from it. In fact, and the good news is that you have the power to find your way back to the person you know you are deep down. It's been inside you all along. Suzanne Jones has helped thousands of participants with her life-changing somatic healing program and in her book leads you on a journey back to your authentic self by guiding you through a personal exploration of recovery, growth, and resilience. She's been profiled on CNN, Yoga Journal, the New York Times, Shape and in Shape and Whole Living. Welcome to the show, Suzanne. Nice to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, I think that one of the things that's been said about your book, I don't know if you've said it or other people have said it or both, but this may be the last self-help book that we'll ever need. So that's a pretty big statement because there are so many self-help books out there and each one has <laughs> <laughs> telling you that, okay, this is it. This is what you need, but you, but yours is different. How is it different? How is it going to be the last self-help book that we'll ever need? Or why is it going to be? Most self-help books are kind of how-to, and they give a lot of instructions um, for how to fill in the blank, you know, how to enrich your life or how to um, be more successful, how to X, Y, Z. And they're, they're more like instruction manuals. And, my, and I, you know, I, I feel that there, there's value in that. There's value in all of these self-help books that can really help us organize our thoughts and organize the way we're walking through life, but there's nothing to fix, um, is written from the belief that every person has what they need inside them in order to change their lives, in order to heal and ease their suffering. So the book is less about how to and more about here is here are some ideas to consider, and then here are some ways to see if you can actually find this inside of you and use it in your life to help you in the long term. And I really think that that's the big difference between most self-help books and the book that I wrote. So in other words, your book is about what we can discover in ourselves because it is there. It's inside of us. It's innate. We're not trying. Okay, so finding, it's that whole discovery process that we have to go through. Um, So take us through that process. I mean, I know in the book you give examples and you have real people stories. Uh, Maybe that's the most helpful way for us to understand how we do this. Right. Well, the, the, the premise of the book is in the name. There's nothing to fix. One of the things that I have found in my work is something that perpetuates this feeling of suffering is this belief that you have to change yourself, fix yourself, find a way to fit in, find a way to be worthy of love and worthy of belonging. And so one of the first things that we really work on is allowing people to understand that experiences of 
feeling excluded or unloved or rejected in our very, very young lives are experienced by the body and remembered in the body. And that is the source of all the discomfort we feel in our body. And oftentimes we can't connect that to an actual memory, but it's okay because there are ways to just recognize what you're feeling in your body and start to have a more compassionate, um, what's the word, start to have a more compassionate recognition of what those are and use some very simple tools to just allow you to almost like ride the wave of these sensations. Sometimes I, and sometimes I say it's kind of like when you, when you're driving down the highway and you suddenly hit a big rainstorm and you, you literally need to pull your car over and just wait it out. That's kind of the practice. You know, you recognize the sensations in your body. You know that they're from experiences early on in childhood and you use these practices to wait it out. And then once you've wait, wait, learn, we're able to do that or we've learned how to do that, I guess, uh, just wait it out, as you say, then you give us the tools to teach us how to build our self-confidence, um, our self-acceptance. That's, I guess, obviously the, the, the main goal so that we begin to accept ourselves and we're not always struggling to, well, struggling for pr- approval, I guess. I mean, that's key, I think, as a child. And then we carry that with us through adulthood. And that's not where we want to be. Yeah, I think one of the missing pieces in the way that the Western clinical world addresses any kind of mental health issue or trauma or malady, one of the missing pieces is this recognition that um, there has been, this is what I would call survival wiring, right? And so as you start to gain more confidence and more awareness and more self-compassion individually, there's a way in which that is experienced relationally or socially. And that actually happens, it's, the thing that's missing from the book, because you don't read a book in a, a group setting, but in the program that I run, that's a piece that seems extremely important is this combination of gaining your own strength back and having an experience of being unconditionally accepted within this group. And what happens is you start to have new experiences So I'll give you an example of that. I'm running an online group right now, and one of the women shared an experience, a new experience. So the experience of recognizing that she was being very activated in a conversation with her husband, or maybe it was her mother-in-law, and she told us about how she noticed the sensation in her body. She took some breaths. She didn't get defensive or engage in the behaviors that would really be her habitual responses. And as she was telling the story, she just beamed. She just looked so happy and excited. And it was, it was as if she had an experience that she had never had before. And when that happens in particular, it's going to happen in relationship with other people. Cause when we're alone, you know, it's not so hard, <laughs> but you know, you can sit alone and feel 
not so activated or not, you know, your, your buttons don't get pushed, let's, let's say. But when you're in relationship with someone, that's when the practice becomes extremely important and where you'll have those new experiences, which are almost like a, a new memory that's going to replace an old one, you know, a memory in the body. And eventually your somatic response, that activation that you are so used to feeling that creates suffering in you, um, it kind of goes away and you're sort of left feeling like you're wondering where that feeling is because you've lived with it all your life. Suzanne, you're talking, I know you're an expert in the field of trauma recovery. So is there a continuum or a bell-shaped curve in terms of, say, the trauma that we've all, I, I'm, hear, I, I'm hearing you say that we have some, have all had our maybe little traumas or big traumas uh, in childhood um, and which prevent us from discovering what we've been talking about, you know, the innate strength that we have. Um, is it very different, I guess, for different people in terms of what they've experienced when they were younger? Yeah, there's really uh, a wide spectrum of the ways in which experiences of feeling rejected or unloved or not belonging in childhood manifest in adulthood. So those can range from, um, so first of all, I think I, I probably would need to say that one of the theories that I, that underscores the program in the book is that because of the developmental capacity of children's brains, we can experience what are considered normal, you know, society's normal things as threatening to our life because we're okay. biological Examples, organisms. what would they be? I'm stopping you there. The normal things that would yeah. be threatening. So an example okay. would be um, if you're, let's say you're three years old and you're crying and one of your parents or your caregivers expresses frustration or anger that you're crying and tells you to stop crying. The way that a three-year-old, the only way a three-year-old can, can, um, consciously make sense of that is that they did something wrong to cause their caregiver to reject them. So they adapt. So that's a moment when they'll say, okay, I, I can't cry anymore. Now I do, I take groups through exercises and I have them identify a time in their childhood when they felt broadsided or um, isolated you know, any kind of, you know, where something happened that wasn't what they expected. And it doesn't matter how old my, my group is, everybody has at least one thing that they remember. You probably can think of one, you know, as well. And that's a, that's a moment that burns in your memory because it's, it's connected to your actual survival. What we see with trauma survivors is that when you have this very, um, just a much more intense experiences of rejection and abuse and, and hurt. Over the course of time, children tend to just conclude that they are not worthy of love, that something is just fundamentally wrong with them. And that becomes very dangerous because once they develop that self-belief, they then will look for belonging because human beings still need, it's a deep 
human need to feel a sense of worthiness and belonging and connection. Once the child decides that they're not worthy of love and belonging, they will gravitate towards groups that feel the same way. So this is why young boys growing up in poverty or being raised by drug-addicted mothers will join gangs. It's not really because of what the gang's doing. It's that sense of, of belonging. Same with um, things like cults. People don't join cults because they want to join cults. They feel there's that initial feeling of, I found a place where I belong. And so then that, you know, the way that that manifests further is that's where you see the path to drug addiction, the path to eating disorders, the path to self-harm behaviors. Um, but something that's less recognized is the anxiety that, say, children who identify their worth through their academic excellence are starting to have crippling anxiety in as early as middle school, and the rates of suicide are rising in part because kids are connecting their very worthiness with their academic performance. And so if they don't achieve their own set of ideals, they, they suffer. I wonder how that uh, plays out, or maybe you can tell us, like in, in now with COVID-19 and they, you know, having to, or feeling that they have to be, uh, they're competing, how well they do in school or how is, you know, is connected to their innate feelings of, of uh, uh, self-confidence or self-acceptance. Um, is it particularly or difficult for them now? I mean, in, how does that fit into, because we have a very, sort of a, a strange academic situation wherever we are here in the United States, and it changes daily. So how does that fit into the, what you're talking about? Well, I think the long-term impacts of that remains to be seen, but I am very curious about different age sets. So one of the things that I've been hearing from friends and colleagues is that their middle schoolers and high schools, high schoolers are actually... Uh, performing better academically with online learning, which to me leads me to wonder, is there a social situation happening in school that is, if not traumatic, at least distressing enough to impact their ability to focus on academics? So that's, that's one curiosity that I have. And then in terms of you know, children who are missing their social um, environment or, you know, some, somehow feeling isolated through online learning, I think, that, I think that remains to be seen. But I do know from the studies that are emerging now that this period of COVID is seeing rising rates of suicide, depression, anxiety, drug addiction. So there's something about the isolation that is, that is not healthy for us also yeah so th- there's really we are there's no balance it seems it's right I mean, before yeah there has to be some kind of balance in what you're saying actually I, I i had never heard um the first uh part of what you were saying the fact that some of these kids are doing better because they aren't surrounded with other issues that 
get in the way of their academic performance. Is that what you're saying? I mean, maybe kids are teasing them or bullying them or they don't do well on sports or they don't, you know, excel in extracurricular activities and that begins to affect their academics. But when they're at home, it's a different situation. I mean, it's, um, they're not exposed to that kind of um, negative um, behavior, I guess. Well, I think uh, that's definitely a curiosity I have. And every, you know, it's very difficult to, um, attribute an experience to this broad, to a broad group of people. So some kids are going to benefit from that online learning because of things like you mentioned, like bullying or really, really difficult social situations. Some kids are going to really struggle because the social, their social climate at school is, is healthy and provides a feeling of confidence and worth for them. But I think ultimately what you said is really important is there, there, there needs to be a balance because in the long term, social isolation is actually not good for us at all. It's not good for our brains. It actually starts to create a feedback loop of stress in our bodies. So at some point, there has to be a balance between feeling confident and being able to focus on your schoolwork and having a healthy social environment in which you can flourish and grow. So how do we do this in the context of, of the pandemic um, and in relation to the work maybe that we need, uh, maybe work is not the right word, but what we need to do in terms of, in relation to what you're teaching us in your book. I mean, how do we do that now in this context, finding our innate strength in a situation where we are isolated, not connected, um, you know, our whole world has been turned upside down. Can we do it? Luckily, um, what I'm finding is that COVID has actually expanded the boundaries of the, va- the availability of my program by offering it online. Um, uh, my co-facilitator and I have been offering Timbo programs online all of them have been selling out, and the, the women in the group, it is just for women, but the women in the group, as we go through it, they really express being amazed at how connected they feel with, with all of the other women in the group and how fulfilled they feel. And a lot of them are even saying, this is, like, this is saving my life during this pandemic. You know, this is the thing that is like allowing me to get through this and feel like I'm connected and I care about all of you. And so that's been, I would say, such a pleasant surprise for me. And it feels wonderful to be able to have people from Canada and Ireland and England and all over the U.S. coming together and expressing vulnerability, but also building confidence and helping each one of us feel like we are unconditionally accepted and lovable just as we are. And that to me feels like a little bit of a gift in, in all of this, in the, in the pandemic and all of the call for isolation. Well, you mentioned these women are from all, from different countries. What about the rest of the, the other demographics? 
age, for instance, being one of them? Uh, what what do, uh, what comprises the group or these groups usually? So we work primarily with women uh, eighteen and older. But the way I will say the way that women are wired. Every time a woman goes through this program, her very first question to me is, what about kids or what about men? Women are always thinking about how they can help others. So there's a way in which this program can be, just at least the essence of the program can be shared from parent to child, from partner to partner. And it's also one of the reasons why I wrote the book. I decided that I wanted to be able to give people access to what Timbo was more easily and cheaper, a lot cheaper than coming to a training or coming to a program. So my belief, and I, and this is backed up by what I've witnessed is that when women experience this and benefit this, they naturally bring it into all their relationships. And so it sort of has a trickle down uh, effect. So in other words, that if they change, then it just sort of, I don't want to say by osmosis, yes, but their relationships begin to change and they begin to change those significant others just automatically, the, the people who are in their environment, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. In fact, when we delivered the program down in Haiti, where there's a very, very high rate of domestic violence what we were hearing from the women was that those rates of domestic violence were reducing because the women were changing in such a way that it was changing the, their actual relationship with their, with their husbands. Okay. Tell us how did that, ha- how, how real specific because if, you, yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that you learn through Timbo is not just to how, not just how to regulate your own emotions and stay less and become less reactive or less defensive, but also to understand that the mechanisms that are operating inside of you are operating inside of every human being. So there's a way in which women become less reactive, more calm. Um, so they're not engaging in fights but they also have a more compassionate view of the person in which they're in relationship. So when this happens, I'm not excusing domestic violence, but it's kind of like a match, you know. One thing will happen, and then the woman will react, and it kind of ignites this flame, and it escalates into this um, experience of violence. But when the women actually have the capacity to stay grounded, um, and be in conversation without that activation, the men learn from that and they respond to that. And it's pretty miraculous. Uh, when you use the word miraculous, that's exactly what I'm thinking, miraculous. Because here in the United States, at least the statistics that I've been reading, the is- the incidence of domestic violence is, is increased during this pandemic. People being forced to be together these past seven months, quarantining. Um, so, I mean, it's fascinating if you're saying that that happens in Haiti, is it happening in the United States or do you have any kind of a comparison? I don't have much of a comparison. I personally have brought the, the program to a group of domestic abuse survivors and I haven't followed up with them to see most of these women were in shelters, so they weren't actively in but I 
But I do know that so many of the women that come to my program are either in abusive relationships or trying to get out of one or in the process of getting out of one, which can be very, very difficult. So I know that the what I've seen, and I haven't done any research on this, although I hope to, what I've seen is when the women begin to understand their own worth and understand that they are beautiful and worthy and there is nothing that they need to fix, they start to understand the, the type of relationship they're in and gain the courage to start to, to, to leave. And, you know, what, what I, if you read the book, you know that my, my history is domestic abuse as well. And I, when I realized that I kept trying to fix myself to please this man that I was married to, and in that process, I lost all sense of who I was. I lost my voice. I lost my confidence. I had to get to a I had to get to a moment where I realized I, I don't have to believe the things that this person is telling me about me. You know, and that's the, that's the moment where I was able to say, okay, his truth of me is not my truth of me, and I don't have to suffer anymore. And, took, you know, unraveling that takes a while, but that's the first place you have to get to is this place of self-acceptance. That's why... So- that's in the book title. There is nothing to fix. Yes, just because he says it doesn't make it so. Um, there's nothing to fix, and, and you know, I, when I, it's a great title. But I'm thinking of you know all of the things that we we see on on television that women are exposed to. It's always about something that we need to fix, which is usually external. Whether you know it's our hair, our bodies, our fat, our whatever it is, right? Being a better parent, doing this better, doing. I mean, it's a huge, huge marketing um, sort thing. Whatever you know, be a good cook, be a good you know business person. Um, there's always something to fix. That's the that's what we're exposed to every day, I guess, in the media. Yeah, I think this culture pr- almost preys on, on not the culture, but the, um, the, the commerce of this culture preys on the fact that we all have these early wounds and we all want to make ourselves acceptable and lovable and they kind of prey upon that and they, this also exacerbates it. And there's so many examples of this and it just ranges it's a broad range of things, but like you said, weight or beauty or wrinkles or, um, you know, just, again, academic excellence. This country really focuses on academics, and so that can actually be very damaging. You know, when children, you know, you go to school and your worth is told to you through a grade, and, you know, it can, if you feel like that's your worth, you're always trying to do better, be better, fix yourself, change yourself. And that is the very source of our suffering, this constant feeling that we're not good of, enough. Of and defining we're never us. I hate right. to cut you off. I didn't really give you a couple minutes time. We have 30 seconds left. I, you know, I'm just so, I'm engaged in the conversation. Oh my God, so, that was so fast. Yeah, I know. It went by fast. <laughs> so I just, I do want to, uh, yes, the, 
title of the book again because uh, we want people to go out and get it. It's a great book. Um, there's not, there is nothing to fix. Becoming whole through la- radical self acceptance. And uh, the author is Suzanne Jones. So much to talk about. And also, just give us a website where uh, um, the where we can buy the book. I assume online. Uh, and also the uh, website we can go to for more information about your workshops, the Timbo. Uh, you can. The book is available on Amazon, so you can just go to Amazon and search There's Nothing to Fix by Suzanne Jones. You can also go to my website, which is www.suejonesempowerment.com, and from that website you can find my next Timbo group, you know, my next Timbo groups, if you want to sign up for those, you can find links to the book. And that's kind of the catch-all website for everything. Great. Suzanne, thanks so much for being on the show today. Lots of good information for all of us, Catherine, women and men. thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 